chapter 1. If you're wondering why in the world are we in Zephaniah, or where in the world is Zephaniah, well, I'll answer the second one first. Zephaniah is after Habakkuk, just really, if you go to the New Testament and go back a little bit from Matthew, you'll find it probably most easily. Um, but why are we in Zephaniah? Well, Thursday I did a lot of work on the sermon for First Kings, getting back to First Kings after our series on marriage. And then Thursday night, after I'd gotten my new laptop, I transferred all the files over and didn't transfer that one over. And I also, on the old computer, deleted all the files so the kids would have plenty of space. So there is a sermon somewhere in that computer. Probably gurus could retrieve it, but the trash was deleted, emptied, whatever, and I couldn't find it. So went to a sermon I'd done before, though, worked on it. Not exactly the same, but Zephaniah chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. God's word says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble which with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together, yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, 
Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you might be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. You may have heard the story of the mom who was having a frazzled and hairy day trying to get ready for her lunch guest. As they drove up, she dashed here, hiding this, ran there, covering up that. And then as the doorbell rang, she quickly paused, took a deep breath, composed herself, straightened her hair, and then slowly walked to the door and opened it graciously, acting as though all had been just calm all morning. Well, they visited and had pleasantries, and then they sat down to eat, and the mother said to the daughter, would you please pray for the meal? And she said, well, what, would I, what should I pray? She goes, well, just pray whatever you hear mama pray. And she says, oh, okay. God, why did they have to come today? The cat was out of the bag, so to speak. The mother who had hoped to give this person of everything had been peaceful and tranquil now lets it be known through her daughter that all was not that way. And we've all probably experienced moments like that when secrets we wish had remained hidden came to light. We don't like it and we wish that would go away, but there are things in our lives that we wish would stay secret. People say we have skeletons in our closets. Shameful secrets we hope never make it out. Well, does God have skeletons in the closet? Are there secrets about God that it would be better if we kept them hidden away? As we read this passage, I wonder what your thoughts were. Some Christians read these passages and go, why did anyone ever believe this? Why would someone hold these things to be true? About a decade ago, a major Christian denomination was planning a new hymnal, and they wanted to put in it this song we sang last week, In Christ Alone. And yet they didn't like one phrase, and so they wrote to the author, and they said, could we remove this phrase and put something else? What they didn't like was the phrase that Jesus, because of him, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they asked, could we replace it with the love of God was magnified? Well, in and of itself, that's a wonderful phrase. The love of God was magnified at the cross, but the author is saying, no, if you're going to take that out, we're not going to let you have the song because at the cross the wrath of God was satisfied and so since the author would not allow the change the committee that was overseeing the hymnal said we will not include this song well what should we think of God's wrath his punishment like that mother are you wishing it could stay hidden out of sight and yet while many even many professing Christians find this a doctrine that we don't want to believe, I hope to show you this morning that, in fact, this truth is foundational. It's encouraging, and it should be celebrated. In fact, by understanding this, we will see that God's love is magnified. With that being said, we'll see three things this morning. If you have a bulletin, you can see this outline on the back. First, in the first six verses, God's coming judgment. Then, in the next 11 verses, God's day is coming, and then it ends with God giving a way of hope. But this all begins with God's coming judgment, and Zephaniah tells who he is. He is the great, great grandson of the honored king Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah was one of the great kings of Judah, the southern kingdom that had stayed when the ten northern tribes broke away. And Hezekiah was a king who brought reforms, led Judah back to worshiping God, and during his reign, he led Israel through many dark times. And I think Zephaniah brings this up because he wants to say, look, realize I'm someone who's saying this not because I hate you, but because I love you. It would be like George Washington's great-great-grandson standing up to speak to the United States. We go, oh, here's someone who loves our country. What they're saying is intended for our good. And Zephaniah is wanting them to know, yes, my words are harsh, but I mean them for good. And he says he's speaking during the time of Josiah. So this is about a hundred years after the northern tribes, Israel, were defeated and taken into exile. Well, Zephaniah gets immediately into his message. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. After we finish mowing our yard, there's grass clippings, there's dirt that have brushed up on the sidewalk. And so we get our broom or our blower and we get them off as far as we can. We don't want them there. We want it far from us. And that's what God says. He's going to come and he's going to sweep everything away. Land animals, birds, fish, everything. And there's an order here. It's the reverse order of that of creation. In verse 3, it goes fish, birds, land animals, humans. The order seen in Genesis. And he's showing he's reversing what he created. And though this judgment is going on the whole earth, in verses 4, he makes clear it's going to happen against Jerusalem. It's going to be centered there because though they worship the Lord, though they worship Yahweh, they also worship Baal. Note, they aren't denying worship of God. They're saying, well, let's worship God and these other things. Notice it says in verse 5, they bow down and swear by Yahweh, but also swear by Milcom. James Boyce tells of the Irish folk song, there was an old woman in Wexford, and Wexford town did dwell. She loved her husband dearly, but another man twice as well. And that's sadly the home that could be said for many professing Christians. They love God, but they love their money much more. They love God, but they love their popularity and reputation more than him. They love God, but they love themselves twice as well. And God makes clear that he is jealous for your love and your love alone. We have a hard time with that concept because when we think of jealousy in relationships, we think of insecure people, people who are possessive, they're insane. And yet, love demands total adherence, doesn't it? Would we be fine with a soldier who's faithful 364 days of the year, and only one day is he selling our secrets to another country? Well, no, we say, we demand your loyalty 365 days of the year. We're jealous that you don't share even for one second, any secrets of our nation. That love is jealous, and it's good. And God's love is jealous because he knows what's best for us, and if we flee from him, we're going to hurt ourselves, and we're going to dishonor his name. And yet, as is often the case, when the Lord is only on their lips, 
but they love something else that's going to lead their actions elsewhere. Notice they do this by something they don't do. Verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or who do not inquire of him. These are sometimes called sins of omission. To omit something is when you don't do it. Commit it is when you do do it. And sadly, many people have this idea, well, sin is when I do bad things, and I'm not doing those bad things, so I'm leading a life that's pleasing to God. And yet the Bible's clear. It's not just what do you do. Are there things that you're omitting, that you're not doing, because we're called to seek the Lord, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, not just avoid this list of things not to do. O. Palmer Robertson writes, Worshiping the true God requires a conscious and directed effort. This intensity and devotion cannot be regarded as an option reserved for a pious minority. Failure to seek after the Lord is a sin, which shall bring an exterminating judgment. And yet too often we can have a very passive idea of our relationship with God. I was visiting with some pastor friends once, and one man was telling how he went to a new congregation, and he was trying to stir them to love the Lord. And one of the times he was doing this, he was talking to some women, and one of the women said, Pastor, you just don't understand. We're not like you. We don't read our Bibles. And he just didn't really know what to say. I mean, yes, for hundreds of years, were there people who didn't have a physical copy of the Bible because we didn't have printing presses? Well, yes. And those people were wonderful Christians, I'm sure. But now that we have God's word to us, why wouldn't we want to read it? Why wouldn't we want to hear what he has said to us? And this passage is driving us to not just hear what Zephaniah said to them, but to reflect ourselves. Do I love the Lord alone? Am I seeking the Lord? Or do I love the Lord Sunday morning, but... The rest of the week, I have some other things that my heart really loves. And Zephaniah is reminding us we must have undivided love for the Lord. And Zephaniah really starts where we always have to start, and that is with our worship. Because what you love the best is going to drive your actions. Many of you all have been in the Air Force or still serve in the Air Force. Some of you have been pilots, and you quickly learn, or so I've been told, that You have to constantly check your instruments. You have to constantly make sure you're going the right direction. And even if you're off by just a half a degree, once you go a couple hundred or even worse, a couple thousand miles, you'll be way off from where you're intending to go. And Zephaniah is starting there. He's saying, check the instrument panel. Are you directly aimed at the Lord or are you slightly off? But yes, I love the Lord, but I'm veering to the side. And so Zephaniah is warning them, you must serve and love the Lord alone. And yet he warns them as well that if they don't turn, a day, God's day is coming. We see that in verse 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. What comes to your mind when you hear the day of the Lord? Is that a day of joy and gladness? It's the day of the Lord. Or terror or apathy or fear. Or some other emotion. Some of you have had to be deployed. Or your spouse has been to be deployed. Or you've gone off 
to college or a loved one's gone off to college and you know the day when you're all going to be back together. What are your feelings for those days? Well, Zephaniah tells them that because the day of the Lord is coming, they should be silent. One of the weirder experiences I've ever had is being at Texas A&M football games, me in the 80s of thousands of people being there, and loud and yelling, and then an eerie silence would come over the stadium. There would be a silence when a player was seriously hurt. They would cut off the music that was almost always playing. People would whisper, and it was a reminder. It's a game. This young man is on the field having to be carted off that's way more important than what a score is on a billboard over here at the end of the game. The silence occurred because we realized what really mattered. And here, if they realize that the day of the Lord is coming, they'll be silent. God is coming. I should put my hand to my mouth. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 2 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Solomon is telling us in Ecclesiastes, look, when you come to the creator of the universe, at times you need to stop talking and realize who he is. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is from the 4th century, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It's not one many people sing, but it's one I sang growing up. And it goes, Let all mortal flesh keep silence, and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessings in his hand, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage to demand and the hymn writer was basically saying stop and think about what we're singing about here the god of the universe came and took on flesh stop think reflect what is this all about and here that is what zephaniah is calling them to do they should be silent because god has called for a feast we see that in the end of verse 7 and verse 8 and so they should come and gather in the irony here though is the language is used for a covenant we're going to gather together we're going to have this great celebration and yet they're being called back to this covenant meal because they've broken the covenant this will not be a meal of joy and delight be a meal of punishment and judgment now some of what he says in verses 9 and 10 get a little lost in cultural translation we might say but one of them is interesting. It talks about those in verse 9 who leap over the threshold. And though we don't know definitively, most scholars believe what's talking about is this idea that in Dagon's house, a Philistine god, you would not leap over the threshold. And in other words, what this is saying is these Israelites are being faithful to adhere to these superstitions around Dagon while they don't care at all about obeying the Lord. It's like people who get nervous about friday the 13th but they have no uneasiness about not caring about the lord's day it's people who won't walk under a ladder 
will have no concern that they're walking away from God. It's like people who study and meticulously know their horoscope and their finances, yet they never turn the pages of God's word. It's the false worship described in verses 5 and 6. They know how to keep the superstitions for false gods, but they don't obey the living God. And God is declaring coming judgment upon them because of their hypocrisy. So he called them to be silent, but now notice verse 11, because now he says, wail. The silence as you ponder your sins should then lead to repentance, confession. They're going to be judged, and God is going to make sure, verse 12, he's going to break out the lamps. In other words, no creature will be hidden from his sight, but all will be naked and exposed to the eyes of whom before we must give account. We like to think that no one knows what we've done. We're glad that people don't know our thoughts. However, God knows and sees every part. His floodlights come in and show every nook and cranny, and we'll have to give an account. You notice what these people say. Their complacent, verse 12, tells us. They say, ah, the Lord's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything ill. They're probably thinking, look, God made a promise to David that his kingdom will last forever. He's not going to do anything to us. Let's just sit back. Hey, look over here. Here's this guy serving the Lord. Is his life any better than ours? No, nothing's going to happen. Just do whatever you want. And I'm not sure a more accurate description of how Americans view God could be given. Yeah, God exists, but he's not going to judge us. You know, if we want things to change in this world, we have to be the change. We have to do everything. God's not going to make this world any better or worse. We've got to do it. And yet God is condemning this complacency. The mindset, well, I used to gather to pray and study God's word. I used to have the children do this. I used to, or I planned to, but nothing happens. G.A. Smith writes, The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assault of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being set upon. Complacency. But oh, yeah, I know some people love the Lord, but I'm saved and I'm okay now. I want to live my life as I see fit. And yet God is saying that is the type of thing that will bring his punishment. So verse 13, he goes on talking about how their possessions will be looted. All the hard work they've done, it's not going to benefit them. And this should really cause them to remember what happened 100 years before to Israel is going to happen to us. And so they must take action because this day is near and coming quickly, he says in verse 14. It may seem, currently, it may seem like nothing is going to happen from God. It may seem like nothing good or ill will occur, but they are gravely mistaken. And then Zephaniah gives seven descriptions of this day. The sound of that day will be distress. Even the mighty warrior will cry aloud bitterly. This is the type of person who knows what war is like, and yet this is so bad, even he is utterly astonished. 
It's a day of wrath, of emotional distress and anguish, of physical ruin and devastation. The weather will be changed to darkness and gloom, clouds of thick darkness. There'll be trumpet blasts, battle cries, and all this is pointing to the fact that no defense will stand. It'll be so great that people will walk around like blind men, it says, and that blood will be as common as dust. Now, this is not being God. This is not God being capricious, but rather this is his holy response to sin. This is not God having a temper tantrum or losing it. This is what the just judge of the universe does. Now, many of you have followed the Derek Chauvin case. What would have happened if the verdict had been not guilty? There would have been distress and anger, and rightly so, because why? Because we all know that justice should be meted out. And if we demand that of other humans, how much more should the God of the universe demand that? Why do we believe this idea that, well, God, he's just love? No, God will make all things right, and we should find comfort in that, that no one is getting away with what they've done to you. A human jury may declare innocent, but if God knows guilty, they will receive an ultimate guilty verdict. In this case here, verse 18, he goes on that on that day, it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're guilty before God, you're not going to be able to bribe your way out of it. You will be consumed because he will make a full and sudden end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Yet the reality is many people do not like these verses. These are Old Testament, and they are actually. These are of a God of wrath. I want a God of love. Well, I would like a God of love too, but the question should not be and is not what kind of God do you want, but what kind of God actually exists. I want milkshakes and pizza to be healthy. I do not want vegetables to be what I need. It doesn't matter. They are what they are, and they will do what they do. God is a certain way, and God has revealed who he is. We're not guessing. He showed us. And if God tells us, I'm the God who wants love for me, and I want you to not waffle and do both, ah, I love you, God, but oh, I love all this other stuff, and I will judge the sin against that, then we should believe him. And yet, even beyond this, how do you know that someone truly loves you? As we say, talk is cheap. Anybody can say, oh, I love you. But you know their love by their willingness to sacrifice for you. And God was willing to sacrifice his own son. God was just and is just and was not willing to turn aside sin as though it didn't matter. He said sin matters and so I'm going to put it on my son. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God because God does not overlook sin. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, 
Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, propitiation. It means sacrifice of atonement. Atonement's a big word. And that means a removal of wrath. You know, the sad irony of the denomination that wanted to get rid of the words, the wrath of God was satisfied with, the love of God was magnified, is they were undercutting the very thing that magnifies God's love. If Jesus did not need to come to die to satisfy God's wrath, if all God was, if all Jesus was, sorry, was an example for us, that is not love. If I know that my child hurts their arm and we could take it to the doctor and they can fix it, but I say, you know, I want to show your siblings how much you love them. So you're willing to lose your arm for them. So let's chop it off. You would think, you're crazy. Well, why are you chopping my arm off? There's no need to do this. That's not love. And if Jesus didn't need to die, but he was just this example, that is not God the Father showing any love. That is showing an ugly God. If we want to magnify the love of God, then we have to realize that Jesus came to take the wrath of God. It's his love that causes him to be wrathful. We know God loves us, not just that we hope and want him to love us, because he did not arbitrarily remove wrath, but he put it on his son. And the truth is, anybody who really loves someone else gets wrathful. They get angry. Becky Piper writes it this way. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. If I, a flawed and narcissistic sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. So there really is no choice. For if you take away God's justice, if you take away his wrath towards sin, then you undercut any meaning of what it means when God says, I love you. God is wrath because God is love. Yet so much of this is really tied to the fact that we just don't think that we're really that sinful. Again, James Boyce writes, a man once said, I've spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. The speaker was Al Capone, one of the most vicious gangsters of the Chicago gangland era. At a neighbor in Columbus, Ohio, who had been in prison for 17 years for some pretty horrible crimes, and yet he told me up and down, I never lie. With his shining virtue, I never lie, Pastor, which was good. I was very proud that he didn't lie. But uh, he had been in prison for 17 years, and he'd done some really horrible things, and yet I'm not that bad. I tell the truth. Even if I have to say some bad, I tell the truth. And yet that's what we do. We move some virtues up. I'm good here, so it doesn't matter about these here. Or we 
compare. Well, look at what they, I'm not as bad as them. But before God, it's not how do I compare with you or you or you. It's how do I compare to God? And it's not do the scales balance out 50.001% good and only 49.999 repeating bad. So, woo, I slid in. No. God demands 100% good, 0% bad. And none of us can do that. And that's why Jesus came to die. And so the question really is, are we ready to stand before him? Are you ready for God's day? I enjoyed being a high school math teacher, but I hated one thing. I hated a few things. But one thing I really hated was fire alarms, fire drills. And the worst actually was when somehow it would sneak out from some principal, oh, we're probably going to have a fire drill today. That was the worst because then all day, even the slightest noise, I would jump. And without fail, every fire alarm, every fire drill, I would jump. And I knew we have to do one a month for nine months. Worst part of being a teacher, one of the worst. And you know what? They could tell me, but I was never ready. And yet, that's how people were before God. You are going to die, or Jesus will return, and you will have to stand before him. You can get ready now. You don't need to wait and jump and go, I didn't know this was coming. It's coming. Is there any hope? Well, yes. We see that lastly in verses 1 through 3. God's way of hope. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. But before the good news, he shares some more bad news, because notice what he calls them. Gather together, yes, gather together, oh, shameless nation. In other words, look, you people who sin so much that you don't even blush, that you don't care about sin anymore, yes, I want you to come. And notice as well, he doesn't say, come together, my people. He's now referring them with the distant language of nation, you people that I have nothing to do with. But what does he say? He tells them to hurry. Notice four times in verse 2. Come before, come before, come before. He's saying, look, you've got to get ready. I'm letting you know beforehand this is coming. And so what should they do? Verse 3, seek the Lord. Now this is rather astonishing when you think about it. We've had all these verses showing them their sin, all of these things declaring judgment's going to come, and then he says, seek the Lord. This is like running to the police or being in jail waiting for trial and saying, Hey, I want to hurry and go before the judge because I know I'm guilty. Well, why would we go to the very one who's going to condemn us? Because the Lord is not just just. The Lord is also love. So he tells them, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. He wants them to turn from their sins and seek righteousness. He's saying, look, repentance is not genuine if you want to continue in that sin. As well, seek humility. The humility that says, look, I can't come to you, God, in my own goodness. As we sing in the song, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We come before God in humility. I'm not coming Letting you know all these years I've been a wonderful person. I'm the guy who never lies. No, we come admitting all our faults, saying, God, only by your mercy will I be 
forgiven. And thus the verse ends saying, perhaps they may be concealed from God's anger. If Judah had turned, they may have been delivered. However, now the day of God's anger is coming and there's no stopping it. But may they be hidden? Well, at the end of Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 11, it says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deed by which you have rebelled against me. If they heed. But we know Judah did not heed, and so Jerusalem was eventually sieged, conquered, raised, and the people taken into exile. God is holding out hope. He's saying there can be deliverance. Will you respond? Will you humble yourself? Admit your sin. See that only in coming to the judge is there forgiveness because the judge put the judgment on his son. Tom Rayner writes, Do you know the name Harry Truman? Let me be clear. Do you know the name Harry Randall Truman? No, he was not a former president. He was a homeowner at the foot of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. In 1980, the volcanic mountain was showing signs of a major eruption. Indeed, one expert declared that the chance of a major eruption was virtually 100%. Truman lived in the most likely path of the volcanic flow. Government officials implored him to leave. Friends told him that this failure to move was tantamount to suicide. Family members begged him to leave lest he die. On May 18, 1980, the massive eruption took place. The lava flowed right on the projected path of Truman's home. On May 18, 1980, Harry Randall Truman died. He had all the warnings. Everyone told him, there's a way of escape. Leave your house and you will be safe. And yet he didn't and wouldn't. And God is warning them, he's warning us, there's a way of escape. Yes, it's going to come, but I am just and loving. And I want you to come to me. As we read these verses, I wonder if many of them reminded you of Golgotha, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day in which darkness will fall upon the land. And what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me you know, on the cross we see the exact opposite of what these people say god is not complacent he does good and ill he poured out the ill his punishment on his son that he might do good for us in his love so will you trust him will you seek him in seeking him in seeking righteousness in seeking humility you can be delivered and know him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we take these truths to heart. Lord, each of us knows the battle to have an undivided heart. Lord, would you stir in us a true and pure love that does not waver. And Lord, when we do sin, may we quickly confess, knowing that you are the God who made a way for us to be forgiven. That if we confess, our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.